the book of Revelation chapter 5, the book of Revelation chapter 5, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, though I'll be focusing on verses 6 through 14. It's like coming halfway through the worship service and trying to check in. We're not going to go halfway through the chapter. Um, Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated upon the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls or censers full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. But before I do that, I'm going to get batteries camera. All right. Is it recording? No? Do you want to hit record? Okay, well, that helps. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this morning and your mercy and grace to us. We thank you that you are a God who, though suffering, Lord, you have ascended and taken the seat of all authority and glory and power. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you might, by your grace, work in us a sweet understanding and encouraging sight of you upon the throne that we might ever labor with the knowledge that our King is risen, 
And he holds all the authority in heaven and on earth. Lord, work in us then salvation for your sake and for the sake of the world, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. So as we come to Revelation chapter 5, we've already looked at the first few verses. And there we see the occasion where John is transported in a dream to the occasion in which he, at that same time, many years prior, was standing with the rest of the disciples, looking at Christ as he was ascending into the heavens, and they were peering to see what would happen. And of course, their sight was limited by their own creatureliness. That sight in Revelation 4 is clear to all, represented by the crystal sea. You have the angels and the elders and the whole myriad of heaven looking down upon the earth. They see in a way that we do not see. They see Christ ascended. They see Christ upon the throne. And from Revelation 4 to Revelation chapter 5, what we find in essence is the beginning of a kind of wedding. Those who have been invited are there. They are seated around the throne. And the groomsman comes through the doors in Revelation 5 in order to take for himself because of his obedience and his death to redeem his bride. He takes the scroll that is the reign of himself. It is the reign of Christ Jesus. And in a moment, Christ will open that scroll in Revelation chapter 6 and following. And all of his rule and reign is carried out upon the earth. But in order for that to have happened, Christ had to be obedient to the will of the Father. And it was not the Father's responsibility to open the scroll, but he, in his decrees, gave it to the Son. And he gave it to the Son to rule not only as king, but husband of his bride. And so he gives to the bride not only marching orders that we carry out as the church, but all of the decrees of the Father as it relates to the to the management of the church in the world, rightly belong to the Son. And not just the new covenant church, but the church from the very beginning. Jude speaks of Jesus as the one who led Israel out by the hand, out of Egypt, through the wilderness. It is the second person of the Godhead that was the pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. And he has led Israel even to the point of salvation that we see in his own incarnation, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And here, there is a turn from the dilemma of John, who is worthy to open, that question, that dilemma is remedied, he is comforted in what he beholds in Revelation chapter 5. And then, in light of Christ taking the scroll... There is just doxology. There is worship. Now from the outset, when you come to worship every Sunday, I want you to think of this. Even if I'm not preaching from the book of Revelation, when you step into the sanctuary, what gives you joy, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of sorrow, Even if you had a funeral on Saturday, you come to church on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. Now that celebration does not have to be bubbly joy that is disconnected from the reality of life. 
But it is a stalwart joy. It is a stubborn, resilient joy because Christ, through his angel, has told us, weep no more. The great dilemma of men has been solved once and for all. Christ has suffered. Christ has been raised. Christ has ascended. And here in Revelation 5, we see Christ taking hold of the kingdom, the scepter, the scroll. Two points that I want to make this morning. Taking hold of the kingdom and the song of the Lamb. Taking hold of the kingdom and the psalm of the Lamb. Let's look at this first point, taking hold of the kingdom. Now, let's go back a little bit longer to what we saw last week. In verses 1 through 6, we move from worship, a question is presented at the outset, John weeps because there seems to be no answer, and in that space, that, that millisecond, or however long it was, that the question was presented, that John entered into a state of remorse and sorrow, and then he was told, weep no more. He was comforted, and that he is pointed to Christ. And Christ is described by that angel as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he has conquered. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end of all covenant promise. He is the fulfillment of it all. And when John sees him in verse 6, he does not appear to him to be a lion, as he was called, but a lamb slain. But not a lamb slain lying on the ground dead, but slain standing. And this, for us, although it ought not be for us, a picture of contrast. Right? When you think lion and you think it being near a lamb, what do you think? Uh-oh. Predator prey. Of course, the great visions of the new heavens and the new earth that we see in the scriptures, the lion will lie down with the lamb. Now, what Luther would say in his Heidelberg Disputations, um, the spring after he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Chapel, and the Roman Catholic Church said to the Augustinian Order of Monks, will you take care of this guy? Well, they did not know what kind of man they had on their hands. And in April of 1518... Luther published and presented what we often call the Heidelberg Disputations because they were disputed in Heidelberg. Sometimes it helps to name something after the city where you were. It helps especially those who come 500 years later to remember what in the world happened. <laughs> and in it, he, he talks about theologians of the cross. And he says, we must, when we open the scriptures, become theologians of the cross in this way. That the power and glory of God was most acutely manifested in the death of Christ. And the sort of paradox that we find in Revelation is that Christ at his weakest upon the cross is actually displaying extraordinary strength. And we look at Christ upon the cross and we hang our heads in shame because we think, oh no, it is the great defeat of this religious, religious sect. And it is not. It is, in fact. When Christ was dying... He was breaking the back of the devil. And in obedience to the Father, he was fulfilling his will. And so when we see Christ, the lion and the lamb, though they appear to be contradictory, what they are is the strength of Christ manifested in his humility, even to the point of death. And his death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, killed death. 
His death destroyed death. As Owen would say, the death of death in the death of Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be a theologian of the cross. And this, John is realizing that the one who is slain is not slain unto death, but he is risen and he is standing and he is mighty. And as Christ approaches the throne, the Son of God approaches the Father who is upon the throne, and as the Father is holding the scroll, Christ comes and he takes it because it is his. But it is not his until he fulfills the obligation of the decree of the Father. In the same way that all of the rights and benefits of marriage are signed and sealed. This is a little flexible silicon one, so it's not a really pretty example, is it? (laughs) You put this on, and it is in some sense akin to Christ taking upon himself the seal of the accomplishment of his covenant fulfillment. And he takes it, and at that time what we find is that Christ, being wed to the church, a bridegroom and a bride shows himself to be mighty, willing, capable, and approved to be our Redeemer. This is why even for us today, marriages are a kind of worship service. Not normal Lord's Day worship, but a kind. Because it is even in our marriages that we find the picture of Christ in his church. Christ takes the scroll, and in that moment, the fulfillment of Philippians chapter 2, right? Christ obeyed the Father, even to the point of death. And because of Christ's obedience, even to death, the Father gave to the Son a name that is above every name. Suffering must precede glory. Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is Christ himself speaking. Philippians 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaiah 53, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. And then Hebrews chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. The writer of Hebrews is tracing the outline of the work of Christ and what happened to him in his death, resurrection, and ascension. He takes the scroll because he's the only one who can. He's the only one that can handle it, and he's the only one that can open it. Now, he'll open it in a moment. But in Revelation chapter 5, what we're finding is there is a kind of what is about to happen. What will happen on the occasion of Christ riding in, as it were, and taking from the Father the scroll? And this significance of Christ taking the scroll is clear in its redemptive historical emphasis, its significance. There is a a turn, a profound exclamation point upon the exaltation of Christ Jesus. Now, already... Christ has been raised. That is the beginning of the exaltation of Christ. 
Now, when we speak of Christ's redeeming work, we ought to speak of it in his humiliation and in his exaltation. Now, what we like to do in the church today, because we're a bunch of dour-faced pessimists, because we look at the world and we say, it can't be possible that things can get better. Well, they won't. Certainly, you won't be part of that if all you can ever do is mope and complain about whatever progress the enemy is making. Do you think Satan won on Saturday night? Yes. But guess what? There's a Sunday. There is always a Sunday. In fact, I would argue that a large part of our pessimism, even in Reformed churches, is because we are no longer people that keep the Sabbath. Because we don't remember that Sunday is the day of Christ conquering the death, and we don't live in light of Sunday. We live in light of Monday, because that's when business begins. Because we are a work-addicted people, and work is not the problem. The problem is we do not understand the significance that there is a Savior who is on the throne. And he will share his glory with no other. And what contenders are there to the scroll taker? Who? Well, we have seen the best that we can offer in this country. And let me tell you, I'm not impressed. Not with one of them. Not a single one of them could take the scroll. Only Christ can take the seat of authority given to him by the Father. And what we come to worship to do is to participate in the song of the Lamb, which is the culmination of the completed work of Christ in his incarnation. He's done with that part of his work. He has died. He has defeated death and hell. He has bound Satan so that he even says, while the strong man is bound, we can ransack the house. What's the house? It's this earth. And so when other Christians say to you, the earth is not our home, I want you to say this, then to whom does it belong? Because the scriptures that I read say, the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof. Satan thinks he owns the earth. But what Christ is doing in conquering through the church is taking to himself all that is written in the scroll. And at the end of the scroll is written this. It's mine. It belongs to none other. And one day, the Bible says, the last enemy to be defeated cannot be defeated by the church. It can only be defeated by Christ. And it is death itself. It is hell itself. And so until that day, Christ rules not as a suffering Messiah, but as a conquering Messiah. And as soon as Christ touches the, thr- touches the scroll, all of heaven is waiting. And as soon as he takes it, it's that coronation moment, right? When the pastor says, I declare X and Y to be married, everybody is going... Well, there should be cheering. There's never, we're always so proper, right? There should be cheering, right? And then, obviously, the bride and groom walk down the aisle, and everybody is going, all right, let's eat. <laughs> let's celebrate. Why do we celebrate at weddings? Because they're good. 
We celebrate love. We celebrate covenant. We celebrate two people becoming one flesh. We celebrate things worth celebrating. And is there anything more worthy of celebration than the fulfillment of the Father's will by the Son in his death and resurrection? And so as soon, look at this, and he went and took the scroll from the right. I know I'm spending a lot of time on verse 7, and you're going, oh boy, are we ever going to be done? Do you really want to? Right? This is, this is the meat on the plate of covenant redemption. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him. That's the father who was seated on the throne. So the son took the scroll from the father. And when he had taken the scroll, everyone in heaven understood its significance. And the significance is this. The Savior has taken the throne. And winter will be over. Now, it seems like a long thaw, correct? It's a long thaw. 2,000 years we're waiting for the spring. And who knows how many years we must wait. But we don't wait passively, right? No, we wait, well, according to the theme of what comes. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures that we read of in in chapter 4 and also in the beginning of 5, and the 24 elders, which represent the old and new covenant churches, one church under Jesus Christ, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then they sang. They are, the, the choir is winding up. And then it just bursts forth in song at the same time that there is worship, the prayers of all the saints that have ever been, that are, and will be, are offered before the Lord. I want you to think of that. Before we get to the song, I want you to think of the reality of when our prayers are offered and how they are offered. The prayers that we pray, every Wednesday evening that we have corporate prayer, every Sunday morning that we have corporate prayer, they are gathered together in this mystical way in which time and space do not affect our prayers, and they are offered before the throne as an offering of Christ's resurrected glory. And so all of the prayers of Adam for his children, for the crops to come, for healing to be brought to his family after the murder of one son by another, all the prayers of Noah and his family, of every nameless saint that has ever lived, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of David, and Solomon, and of you and of me, they are all put together, and they are not offered until they can be offered in the name of Christ, the risen Lord. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. And you may say, well, that's, I thought we just did that. Because that's what you do. We do that because of Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. We pray in the name of Christ because our prayers are heard and answered. And then in chapter 8, we'll look at that later, and I don't want to get too far ahead. Those prayers are used to affect kingdom change on earth. And so there is this repository of prayer. And when you pray, this is how you ought to think. Let's fill the bowl up. Let's make it full. Let's pray to the risen Lord that he might express his resurrected glory in our lives. And sometimes, kids, that means you pray for a new bike 
but you ought to pray it expectantly. And then when you do get that bike, (laughs) use it for the glory of God, right? Ride well. (laughs) When God provides, understand that it is all part of the dialogue between the throne and earth. Our prayers are significant because of the one to whom they are offered and because they are offered to Christ as or by those who are humble worshipers. They are offered to the risen, exalted, reigning Messiah and he will do something with them. And so when we talk of the dialogical principle of worship and you go, oh boy, another theological term I don't want you to roll your eyes and say, oh, it's one more thing my pastor wants me to learn about when it comes to Reformed Orthodoxy. The dialogical principle of worship is like this. If you were at a wedding and the pastor turns to one of the participants and says, do you? And he goes, that's not dialogue. (laughs) When you'd come to worship in this covenant renewal ceremony, Christ is expressing his eternal, I do. You are my beloved, and we are called to do what? With joy in our hearts go, yes, absolutely I do. Why? Because we know what he's done for us. He has initiated this incredible transaction of redeeming love. I didn't plan to go there in my sermon. Sometimes the notes just, I lose my place. And it just, you know, it's, it's a topic worthy of um, going off on and really dealing with and looking at for some period of time. Let's go to the second point, the song of the Lamb. All right, so this thing has happened. Christ has taken the scroll. And everybody is worshiping. Our prayers are there. The prayers that we will pray in about an hour are there. I don't know how. God does not live within the constraints of time like we do. But our prayers are there. So pray. And pray in such a way that you know that you will be heard. And pray for the things that you believe Christ needs to do on earth according to what he has said in his word. Now here is the worship. Or here is the song. The worship has already begun. Here is the song. And they sang a new song. Why is it a new song? Because something has happened that has never happened before. Something that has happened has never happened before. And so it is a new song. Because it is a new thing. Christ had not yet taken the throne yet. And now that he has, we sing this song. Now I want to read it without the little narrative refrains. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The earth, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. To him... Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. There are some little moments of refrain where John is describing what is happening, but the song I've just read 
This is good writing. (laughs) This is spirit-wrought language. And it is the language of those who in beholding the conquering Messiah sing about what he has just done. Now, what has he done? Well, we'll get to that. But I want to focus on the song. This worship is the template for all worship in heaven and on earth. It is always an expression of God is worthy, this is why, and this is why we're singing. The world does this. In fact, we were made to worship. All men worship machines. We worship something. Calvin says our hearts are idol factories, which is a sort of negative way of saying we are going to worship something. Much of what we worship is idolatrous because of sin. But in response to the mercy of God, the clear sight of heaven, this is what comes forth. This is the kind of songwriting that happens when you are right next to the throne. And it is a song that is filled, though simple, with the glorious work of Christ. This worship is prompted by something. All worship is prompted by something. It is always, by definition, responsive. God reveals something of himself or what he has done, and we look at that with clear sight or as clear as it's given in Revelation, and we say, thank you, praise be to you. We deal with that truth. That revelation forms the heart. It is the sum and substance of what we sing. And so though this service takes place Somewhere near the turn of B.C. and A.D., it is archetypal for all of the worship throughout history. And all of our worship should look like this. And there makes no mention of man. None. I mean, I go back and I look at this and I'm going... Where's the psychological mumbo-jumbo that fills so many of the songs written by so-called Christians today? I f- I'm com- all of these things, and there is a time to sing of what God has done for us, and we express a, a sort of existential gratitude. But, but where is it? In fact, is this not the emotional fruit of being consumed and jealous for the glory of one, whether it's your spouse (laughs) or whomever you may love. One of the great signs of true love and affection is they become greater and you become less. So let's just talk about things around the house. The only thing, children, that will motivate you and adults to do the thing you don't want to do that's costly at home is the affection you have for the people you're doing it for. That's it. And a lack of love leads to an increase of what? Sloth. And this is where we're trying to get you kids. (laughs) Love for what your parents love, for what they're trying to do, for the house, for that system... And oftentimes, parents do a very poor job of conveying to their children it is about love. It's not just about road obedience. It's about doing what is needed to make the people in your life feel like they mean something. 
if the world is to see the love of the church for her bridegroom, they must see and hear her worshiping. Which means this. And I want to be careful because there are some people, I I don't want to offend some people. I don't mind offending some people, but there are some people I don't want to offend. When the world asks you to stop singing to the Lord, or they say, maybe it's better for the public that you don't gather for worship, you could look at them and say, on the orders of the highest king, I have been called to worship. And I will serve the one whose throne is in heaven and not on earth. So, no, I won't be quiet. I can't be quiet. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah tried to be quiet. Remember? He did not want to do it because he knew that if he started prophesying, well, he knew what happened to prophets. (laughs) They were like apostles. The world didn't want them, and they liked to kill them. But Jeremiah said that when I tried to contain this word, it was like a burning in my bosom, and I I had to speak. It was this spiritual indigestion. And if I did not speak, it would just burn within me. There is but one right reflex for doxology. And it is that Christ has defeated death and hell. We need to know why he's worthy of praise if we're to praise him. So if you're struggling with worship, go to Revelation 5. And look at what Christ has done. You know, three cheers. It's that moment where the the military looks out at its opponent and they're all lying dead on the ground. And they raise their swords or spears. I always think of battle with swords and spears. It's just more epic. And they cheer because the war is ended. The war is ended in that regard. Christ has defeated death and hell. We await the fullness of that. So what are the reasons for this doxology? Christ died and so reconciled his people unto the Godhead. They sing... You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So they worship because Christ is risen. But the content of why they're worshiping is present within the song. Parents, teach your children why Christ is worthy of worship. In fact, reflect in your own life why Christ is worthy of worship, because he is good. Because he is a God who has reconciled us. Because he was a God who died. And through his shed blood, the God-man Jesus Christ ransomed all of those who were his. His death is sufficient and effectual for the elect. The other reason that they mention in this song is that Christ has brought men in, giving them a purpose and exalted them to be heirs and rulers with him on earth. And they sing, you have made him a kingdom, or them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. What Christ is doing is restoring an Edenic order back to creation. But with even greater emphasis on our inability to ever sin again. That's what Christ is doing. In the new heavens and in the new earth, 
Christ will reign with men on earth and they will be unable to bring shame to that kingdom. Even Adam and Eve did not enjoy this, right? They were made free, but able to sin or not to sin, and of course they chose sin. We will be free, even as we are now, but not able to sin. Whew. That's, that's good news. That's worthy to sing about for the rest of your life. In fact, I would encourage you to make Sunday as much a day as possible that reflects the reality of the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what will happen by Sunday night? You will be exhausted trying not to sin. Which is a testimony of what? How much we need the resurrection of our bodies one day. Because it is exhausting to say no to sin. Even it's refreshing and wonderful. It's tough. It's like not eating the, sh- the cookies that are in the, the pantry. And in that, I'm not very sanctified. And then the last point. This doxology is a chronicling of man's relationship to God and what he has done for them. The history of the world and the mission and work of the church is to bring the song of the Lamb to an ever-expanding, growing, glorious crescendo. I don't know if you like soundtracks, and especially soundtracks that are often made with symphonic work. But the way that you know that you're reaching the climax in the narrative is that the music is giving to you a cue, and it stirs your emotions. And it's either driving with strings or drums or maybe some sort of electronic beat. But it is teaching you, whether you recognize it or not, it's showing you where and how you ought to feel. This is good storytelling. You want that. In fact, the stories would not be the same without the music. Because they stir the emotions as much as what's on the screen, if not more. And they complement one another to tell a story. And what we find in this particular song is that John is cueing us in. This is, heretofore, in the history of the world, the greatest thing that's ever happened. Yes, the death of Christ is It's important. And so is his burial. These are fulfillments of prophecies in the death of Christ. The death of sin is in the death of Christ. And then the resurrection, even more glorious because it's good. And how much more the ascension, which Christ even says, it's, it is better that I go. What Christ has done for men has taken away the problem. The problem of sin, the problem of judgment, the problem of our great enemy. He has done it. And so all of our worship must make it very clear what Christ has done for us. And if it does not, it is not worship. And if you do not leave this place better understanding, then you have not worshipped. You've just bided your time. You've guarded your heart too much. You have not been promoted, uh, pr- provoked or, 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 or pricked by the glorious truth of what Christ has done for you. And so every Lord's Day should be, in some fashion, an emotional encounter with the risen Lord. Right? You don't sing Psalm 8 with a monotone voice, do you? Well, you can, but what does that show? I mean, can you imagine if the righteous brother sang, you've lost that loving feeling in just one monotonous tone or unchained melody? If it had no melody, 
<laughs> Thanks. That uh, really means a lot. Appreciate that. No, there's beauty. There's beauty to the song, and the beauty of the song and the glory of it match the beauty and glory of the one who is upon the throne. And it isn't just the elders. It's not just the angels. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the earth and all that is in them saying... To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All of creation harmonizes with this theme. And then the song ends. And the angels say, as you ought to do every Sunday when we sing a song and I say amen, you should say, wait, what were we doing? No! Yes! Amen. Why? Because what we have just sung is absolutely true. It is creedal in its truth. It forms the foundation of our faith. We direct our worship to Christ because he is worthy. And the mission and work of the church, like those ripples that go out from that moment in which something hits the water... Christ has taken the scroll, and from that moment there is this reverberating glory that expands in the ever-growing crescendoing song of the church. It gets louder. And it is the song of the church that converts even the hardest of hearts because they see what Christ has done. And so for us, as we look at Revelation 5, we not only have the reason for worship and the reason to continue, but we have the very substance of the songs and the lives that we are to live. That we are to live lives centered around the throne, exalting the risen Lord, and to seek to make his glory known among the nations. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God.